Okay, so welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. We have a very special guest today, Chloe Valdery, who is the founder of the Theory of Enchantment, which is an alternative DEI program, also the host of the Heart Speaks podcast, which I was on like two months ago, yeah. more or less. So Chloe, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me, Stephen. So right now we're in Fulton Park, which is in Bed-Stuy, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're doing this out in the open air, late July heat. Very pleasant, though. Yeah. Um, so, Chloe, I'm going to first ask you to tell us a little bit about what is the theory of enchantment? How did you come up with this idea? So, the theory of enchantment is a DEI company that I founded in December of 2018. We mostly sell to other businesses. We put employees primarily through our training, through our online curriculum. Uh, they can also go through virtual workshops or in-person workshops. There are three foundational principles of the theory of enchantment. The first is treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy. And try to root everything you do in love and compassion. So that's like the summary of what theory of enchantment is. And then how did I come up with it? It's been a meandering, long-ass journey to Theory of Enchantment. I first came up with it as a solution to what I felt was like a super dogmatic approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. My major was international studies with a concentration in conflict and diplomacy, so that was my topic of focus. I did Israel advocacy for like seven years, learned a lot, failed a lot. Again, I was also super dogmatic in my approach in the beginning, and there was something very unappealing about that. So Theory of Enchantment was at first an attempt to soften the edges of my own dogmas, you might say, um, and come up with a better way to service the Israeli and Palestinian communities amidst the conflict. And then it became this whole framework to like learn how to love, essentially. And it turns out that that applies to many different areas, whether it's international conflicts or, you know, how do you create a culture of belonging in the workplace so that you can attract and retain a diverse pool of talent or go into diverse markets, right? Or, um, you know, enter into diverse conversations between employees in such a way that's not like stifling or where people break down but that actually might produce innovation when you're talking about developing products and services. So what strikes me as really distinct about theory of enchantment as a form of DEI is mm-hmm. that love is at the center more yeah. so than power. Because yeah. the mainstream, the dogmatic kind of DEI we hear about is about you know like trying to assess certain power relations and then kind of overturn them. Yeah. Which, I mean, we, we can see how that has some value in itself, but at the end of the day... Power is not going to make us happy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's ultimately love. So, yeah. like, how did you come to that conclusion that, like, it would be most useful to create this kind of program centered around learning to love other people? Well, like I said, Theory of Enchantment started as, a, as me trying to develop an antidote to more dogmatic approaches to understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or to solving the Israeli-Palestinian mm-hmm. conflict. And most of the approaches were, I would say actually i don't know if i've ever used the word power oriented to describe it but it's power oriented in the sense that it's like how do i win this argument Mm. how do i prove that i am in the right and you are in the wrong which is actually i think the the quote-unquote justice oriented framework that many people reach for when they're talking about pursuing justice but in fact justice requires something more than just centering Mm -hmm. power um And I don't think that people really necessarily think about that when they're thinking about pursuing justice. So I don't know if it was like an explicit question in my mind, how do I get people to shift from a power mindset to a love mindset? I just was like, well, how do you get people to love in general? Um, Because there's gonna be conflict, but I think love helps people, love helps conflict be more easily held and works through. Uh, Because conflict is a part of life. You're not going to get rid of conflict. But you can help shore people up. And you can um, help people be compassionate towards themselves and towards each other, even in the midst of conflict. So that was more of the question. And then the the natural answer for me was love. 
Yeah, and this when you when you say enchantment, yeah, it's interesting because when I first heard it, it made me think of the philosopher Charles Taylor, who I've told you about. Yeah, and his whole thing is that you know, after the Enlightenment, the dawn of secularization. Mm-hmm. We've lost this collective sense of meaning, this Mm -hmm. sense that life is enchanted with beauty, with some greater purpose. And I think we can see that in these power-oriented forms of DEI that only focus on this, like, mechanical sense of justice. Because, again, you can achieve certain certain political outcomes, certain political goals, Mm -hmm. but it's not oriented to some greater meaning like love, like Mm -hmm. unity amongst people, then where does our happiness come from, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it's what you're saying now is making me think of in one of Martin Luther King's sermons, mm-hmm. he mentioned Nietzsche, who, you know, one of the first people we bonded over yeah. when you spoke at the New York Encounter. He was saying how Nietzsche was kind of repelled by Christianity because he saw it as this promoting love without power, mm-hmm. without addressing real concrete issues, mm-hmm. conflicts, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's just saying, okay, all we need to do is focus on power. Mm-hmm. And King was saying, okay, yeah, I mean, as a Christian, he really believed that love is imperative. Love is at the center. But if it's this sentimental, mushy love that doesn't address real issues, then it's useless. Uh-oh. It's Brooklyn, don't worry. <laughs> no, but like, yeah, love without power, love that isn't concrete and dealing with real issues is yeah. kind of useless. So it's interesting how you're trying to bring the whole picture together right, the synthesis, through your program. Yeah. The synthesis of love and power. And Jung, Carl Jung, who's one of the... Yes big thinkers that influences a lot of what we've built at Theory of Enchantment talked about how how I'm going to get the quote wrong but basically like without power or without if you only are focusing on love if you're only focusing on power like power is the shadow side of, of love um, and you can have and this is sort of my interpretation of that there's nothing wrong with pursuing power as long as it's in service of yes. something greater. Mm-hmm. And I think that greater thing must be love. Yeah. But power for its own sake will always corrupt because you'll never have enough of it. Mm. You'll always be trying to seek it out to fulfill some void that you are feeling right now in your life. And I think you can see this economic, you can see this in the, a lot of the economic systems that are current. Uh, modernity is operating according to you can see it in the way that we relate to each other with DEI where there just becomes this endless pursuit of power for its own sake and then it just sort of becomes addictive but pursuing using power for the sake of love and not just for your own self like easier said than done yeah so like I don't know I'm curious in your experience how do you try to live that out how do you try to check your own drive for power and really channel it towards something self-giving rather than self-seeking so there's a lot of stuff in the theory of enchantment that so for all theory of enchantment is practice oriented Mm. or habit oriented so we give people a ecology of practices to take on with the hypothesis that if they practice these practices over time they will be in greater relationship with themselves they'll Mm. be in greater relationship with others and one of the things that we're constantly dealing with when it comes to this question of fighting against racism is the superiority complex superiority complex is like it can happen across any structure. So it doesn't have to be race-based. It can be, you know, when I saw someone or when I heard someone being really um, assertive towards me, I my ego became inflated and I immediately thought that I was better than that person. Like I felt that sense of inflation within my physical body. And it's like the first step to, to getting a hold on that is noticing it. Mm. There's a lot of like, again somatic physical physicality that is part of learning how to love and so noticing the the tingling nervous sensation in my stomach that i felt when i had this interaction with someone when they did x getting curious about that feeling getting curious about what that feeling codes for me and in this case in this example it codes this moment where i thought that i was better than them and and then more practically, if I respond in a way that's condescending, and if you think of the word condescend with dissension, right, to look down upon someone, that indicates that I felt that I was better than that person. It's like, okay, so then there are, first of all, noticing is super, super important because then I can ask, okay, what's the story behind this experience? Like, why is it that when this person was assertive, 
I felt this ego inflation or I felt this superiority. Well, for me, in this case, the reason why I felt a, a sense of superiority, which is a marker of separation, like I'm not in the present moment with, when I'm with this person at that moment. The reason is because there's actually something deep within me that wants to be assertive, wants yeah. to be able to be assertive that I haven't taken responsibility for. And so when I saw that in another person, I actually felt threatened by it. Huh. Um, and so if I can get into the habit of learning myself, no, noticing how these things rise and fall within me, getting curious about them, asking what the story is, asking what the narrative is, so that the next time someone's assertive towards me, and it, it doesn't have to be that the sense of ego inflation disappears, right? But I have choice. Yeah. To and how I choose to respond in that moment, I, and if I really do the theory of enchantment deep work, you know, I might, I might realize that like it has something to do with my relationship with my parents and my upbringing, how I related to them being assertive, blah blah blah. So that when I'm in that moment where someone's being assertive towards me, if I'm taken back to the past, I'm actually not in the present moment, hmm. and I'm superimposing subconsciously my experience that I had with my parents or my caretakers or my siblings. It's bringing me back to that moment, and that's the place I'm responding to. So if I can actually train myself and practice so that I won't respond from that position, but will respond from the present moment. Yeah, I mean, two things that stand out from what you're saying is, first, the physicality of our responses. Because yeah. I feel like we're only taught to, to think about these situations of conflict, of confrontation, of prejudice, in a very theoretical way, using yeah. our minds. But, you know, our bodies really hold so much of the tension you know like yeah. our bodies play a huge role in how we receive and react to different issues the other thing i mean the Jungian Jungian piece uh, so much of what we're hearing today when we're talking about diversity and social justice issues really kind of looks past like the depth psychology that's implicated mm. like we're not really taught to think about how does my my personal history whether it's with my parents trauma yeah. from the past like how does that shape the way i deal with things today we're only really taught to look at it in this very like sociological perspective mm, yeah. you know so this adds a, like a real layer of nuance and like in depth for sure to, to what's going on um but i also i want to play devil's advocate for a second because sure. a lot of what you're saying about theory of enchantment it's focused on it seems like it's focused on interpersonal conflicts like perhaps in the workplace in a school yeah dealing with issues what would you say to someone who thinks you know i mean this is all nice but there are larger systemic issues, larger social issues that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. What do you say to someone with those kinds of concerns or objections? I would ask them, I, I wouldn't say I disagree that mm -hmm. there are larger systemic concerns. I just think we overlook the fractal nature of systems. Yeah. So if I want to, you know, solve things on an institutional level, meaning in the institution that I am operating within on a regular basis. And I don't have practices that are determining how I show up within that space. I'm not going to change the institutional level. And I think, ironically, we see the breakdown of certain policies that only try to solve things on an institutional level. So, like, if you look at a lot of the if you look at Brown versus the Board of Education, yeah. um, ironically, Derek Bell, the grandfather of critical race theory, who fought for Brown versus the Board of Education, who was a lawyer in the South, in the Jim Crow South, helping folks, helping black folks fight against this. Um, he writes about this in a book called Silent Covenants. He later came out against Brown versus the Board of Education wow. because... Brown versus the Board of Education implemented this top-down, sweeping institutional systemic change, which yeah. led to, you know, mass busing of black students to white schools and other types of similar policies. And, you know, he really interrogates the question of how that impacted local black schools in the South that were existing prior to Brown versus the Board of Education, which, yes should have been given access to greater financial resources but brown versus the board of education actually ended up shutting down a lot of those schools and a lot of those schools were the center of small black communities mm. and actually allowed for 
integration of black communities on a local level, and wow. which led to the enrich- enrichment of that community. And so we have to be careful when we talk about systems change to understand the fractal nature of systems change. And I also think this is related to direct democracy. I think because we live in a society that traffics so consistently in the language of representative democracy, we forget that in order to sustain representative democracy, there needs to be things happening on a local level, which requires a more direct approach. And um, the system will shut down and start to break down, as I think we're seeing, if that direct approach isn't counterbalancing the more top-down structure. Um, so I think it's a, sh- uh, it's a frame shift that needs to occur for a lot of people thinking about these issues. Another thing I'll say is we learn this in the world of business. When you have a product, Steve Jobs talked about this actually. Um, when you have a product, just because you have an idea doesn't mean you have a final product. Yeah. You have to put the idea out there. You have to put the idea, you have to put the product out there in front of customers. Customers have to use your product. Customers have to then tell you what's wrong with your product. And then you iterate on that product development and you incorporate the feedback that you got from your customers into the development of new, better products. We approach DEI in this way. Wow. I don't know of any other <laughs> DEI organization that approaches it in this way, but you can see the connection between things like direct democracy, local community involvement, local community integration, and product development of this sort. That, And I think without all of these elements, it's actually silly to talk about institutional change. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, and ultimately, like, a system, an institution can't know you and your needs as a person or the particular needs of a community. It becomes this substitute. And that echoes back to, I mean, this understanding of the enchantment of the person, recognizing how each person is unique, has their own story. Because without that, like, you can't truly love. You know, you can't love abstractly. Um, The other thing that I find so interesting about theory of enchantment, and it's the fact that you're trying to develop this whole sense of the person, is recognizing that, like, identity... When we talk about race, when we talk about ethnicity or culture, like it's not this abstraction. Like it's, it's something with very deep roots. It's you know whatever our ethnic or racial background, it comes with a legacy. It comes from with a you know, a community, mm-hmm. you know. And that's one of the big things. I mean, we talked about when I was on your podcast, especially for people of European heritage. That yeah. when we came to this country, we were told that we could gain status if we you know, if we lost our ethnic identity and just said we were white. Right. Um, especially for Italians, because yeah. for a while we weren't considered white. Yeah, I learned a lot about that from you. And yeah. I've told a lot of people, by the way, the Christopher Columbus story that you yeah. told me, which I didn't know. So yeah. thank you for sharing yes. that. Columbus is not about Columbus. Yeah. Um, no, but, the, but for me, like, I've told you how much it's been valuable for me to recover my own roots because the more you have a sense of where you come from, the traditions, the heritage you're part of, like it makes life more enchanting. It yeah. makes life more full. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, when you were at the New York Encounter, you mentioned the school, this elementary school you went to growing up mm-hmm. that really fostered a sense of rootedness in you. So mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so I attended Langston Hughes Elementary School from kindergarten till third grade. And, you know, it definitely took its namesake very seriously. I remember the first things in first grade that I had to do were memorize a bunch of poetry about the Harlem Renaissance poets and authors or buy them. Uh, I, I remember having to memorize a lot of propositional facts about inventions created by African-Americans. Um, there's like a poetry reciting club that apparently I was a part of. I didn't know that. My mom told me that recently. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was imbued with this sense of resilience within the African-American uh, experience of having gone through slavery and overcome, gone through the, on the other side. The first, the first long poem I had to memorize was by Dr. Maya Angelou, Still I Rise. Yeah. I recited part of it at Encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as a foundational 
memory, core memory at such an impressionable young age that really shaped my sense of identity. I also, you know, my parents took me to museums that explored the history of lynching in this country. So there was also exposure to a lot of the sorrow uh, that has been part of the African-American story. And I think both of those things... It's interesting, actually. I was thinking about this the other day. The very act of singing your sorrow is something that exists in many cultures um i did ayahuasca last year in december and when you do ayahuasca part of the experience according to some shamanic traditions is music like you have to they they play music when you take Mm. it and the music is critical because the music actually moves the medicine um and when I there's another experience that I had recently I wish I could remember where I put two and two together and I was like oh wait this is a thing like African Americans have this uh, cultures in Peru have this like this is a thing oh I know what it was I did a kundalini practice with my friend where you're in these three postures that are really hard 15 minutes each posture you're not stopping and the central question comes up which is how do you deal with pain And it was very, very hard. And I noticed that when I started singing and physically moving my upper body and and like deep breathing, both deep breathing and singing actually helped move the pain. Wow. And that's when I put two and two together. I was like, oh, wait, this is a thing. And I think it's full circle because enchantment, like the etymology of the word, is really related to singing. It's like yeah. you're chanting, okay. right? In Kanto, you're you're chanting, you're chanting, wow. and this I actually, never thought of that. yeah, this wow. actually like puts you into an ecstatic state. Historically speaking, many indigenous cultures would and still do chant themselves into ecstatic states, which prepares them to do some difficult thing that they need to do. Um, so, a bit of a tangent, but actually related, is like uh, I was exposed to this concept of like orally reciting poetry as a way to move through pain as a young child and I didn't I didn't have that description of it back then but now like retrospectively I'm like able to see that that's what it was and that really gels a community holds a community together is a sense making mechanism imbues you with meaning and imbues you with a sense of power to actually move through suffering so. Yeah, no, and this is what fascinated me when I first heard you talking about the school because I'm seeing how much of the contemporary DEI discourse rooted in this very post-structuralist philosophical view is very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the fact that it's being used especially to push forth, you know, um, the cause for, for racial equality, especially for black Americans, always seemed a little counterintuitive to me because mm-hmm. so much of progress in black communities was the fact that it was always so communally centered. There's always something enchanted, whether it's through the arts, whether it's through religion. Mm -hmm. And the fact that right now it's very much focused on, again, blackness as this abstraction, as Mm -hmm. mere identity, rather than rooted in something much greater. Mm -hmm. I see how that's further atomizing a lot of people within black communities, disintegrating the communal, the family dimension. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know, like, it's ironic to me that we would think that such an individualistic worldview could actually bring people further Mm. whereas what you're saying like learning your roots learning you know the beauty the art the poetry to sing your sorrow is super empowering and uplifting Mm. um why do you think we're we've lost sight of that or why do you think that's not part of the mainstream discourse today i think that the post-structural framing that you describe is probably an over response Mm. to authoritarianism I think that this is what the Enlightenment was as well. I think that it was res- a response to, you know, certain structures that certainly did emphasize communal ways of living to a certain extent, but which abused their authority and abused their power and said, we are the only, we are the only holders of truth, capital T truth, yeah. thinking historically of the Catholic Church, for example. And so the swing to in- hyper-individualism was a response to that. Yeah. Um, And we're seeing, you know, the excesses of that. But I think it's important to keep it in context because it it historically was in response to something also really um, terrible. And so it's it's also important to keep in mind that like any framework can go awry. Right. Like any 
you can have experiences that are too communal, right? You can have experiences that are too individualistic. And so that's why balance is not, you know, a definition that falls from the sky. It's something that you must constantly seek out, both as a individual, as as a part of a larger community, in a larger framework, on all those levels, all peoples must be seeking balance. And we don't know how to do that, so... I want to ask you, are you a James Baldwin fan at all? <laughs> yes, I am. We teach Baldwin in Theory of Enchantment. Of course. So Baldwin, I don't think I mentioned this on your podcast, okay. but there's an essay called Nothing Personal. that oh, he I wrote. Know this. Okay. So, I mean, it's pretty short, but he right. says something really fascinating, relevant to what we're saying now about how the slave traders, the slave owners, in order to dehumanize mm. the slaves had to first dehumanize themselves. Mm-hmm. by Jungian idea, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of overlap yeah. here. But he was saying how, like, these slave traders really tried to uproot themselves from whatever their, their culture was, their mm-hmm. heritage. Yeah. Um, and this, this, like, hollowness, this, this mm-hmm. lack of like roots. Numbing. Yeah, like, yeah. that's what enabled them to dehumanize the slaves, but mm-hmm. also made them hate themselves Mm -hmm. and the more they hated themselves then the more they hated black people yeah so again like back to this post-structuralist conundrum Mm. is this really teaching i mean assuming yes certain tropes about white people holding privilege having power like is force enforcing this sense of whiteness really gonna make race relations better is it gonna exacerbate them you know, like, yeah. I, I feel like the question should be how can how can all people tap into their roots so that they can first love themselves? Mm. And then it's easier to appreciate the culture of the other person rather than cutting away everybody's roots, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard to know that you're swimming in water if you're swimming in water. If all you've known yeah. all your life is swimming in water, I don't think that it's... I don't think most people expose themselves to frame shifts. Um, and so, you know, if you're ensconced in this intellectual, academic worldview that is seemingly beneficial, meaning the worldview that, you know, reinforces certain concepts of whiteness and, and, and simultaneously fights against it, which is also weird and, and contradicting. Um, I just think that if you're in that space and you're rewarded for being in that space in some way, then there's no reason to question it it is interesting we're seeing a huge firing of dei uh positions across many different companies so we'll see if that results in a a kind of awakening or if it just doesn't but um yeah i think it's always worth asking if you are confronted with something that seems odd or that isn't working what is this in response to like what wound is this seemingly addressing and then address the wound yeah and it's hard to it can be hard to do that because like it's hard for me to do that sometimes but um i'm learning more and more how to more quickly shift to that question yeah i mean it's it's a process and it's it takes time yeah. you know as you said yeah um and this is something i know i know that you're also a fan of camille Pallia. Yeah. um no it's it's funny because Pallia talks about this like in the 80s when she was in academia that's where you first start seeing this push for diversity mm-hmm. um and she was really repelled by it because she was saying you know she's an italian woman and comes mm-hmm. from immigrant family mm-hmm. and has a very strong sense of being italian mm-hmm. and not fitting in with this like anglo wasp kind of sensibility mm-hmm. she was saying how much she connected more with black and hispanic and jewish mm-hmm. students and professors rather than the wasp ones because even though their cultures may be different there's this sense of rootedness that the mainstream didn't have. Yeah. So I don't know. So I think this is, I hope that the diversity discourse starts to go in the direction of retracing our roots rather than just focusing on individual identity. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what's to come. That, yeah. that would be a heavy lift. It would be, but <laughs> I, yeah, I have hope that this could happen. Yeah. I have hope. For uh, sure. You do have the problem of people who will insist I mean I'm thinking of the classical stereotype of the liberal white person who yeah. old, like hyper identifies with being a liberal white person 
and hyper identifies with the with the guilt that comes with being a liberal white person guilt can imbue a person with a sense of meaning right and so if there's always a gap when you're shifting frames existentially and in that gap there's often a lot of sorrow and mourning that has to take place and the question is are people equipped are people willing to do that mourning are people equipped to handle that mourning i think that's a that's a serious question that has to be considered when talking about persuading people or getting people to change their minds about something as existential as identity there's yeah. there's a mourning period you know it's easier to just erase your roots altogether because mm. then you don't have to look at the wounds you don't have to look at the baggage yeah. you know if i'm just like a liberal white person and i accept everyone yeah it's easier not to have to do the work of wrestling with my own issues and accepting myself yeah but but the issue again like this issue of like uh, identity as abstraction uprooting ourselves makes my tolerance of the other very thin because right. I don't have a foundation. Right. And I like I understand people who have reservations about fostering ethnic pride because we yeah. see how that does definitely Yeah, like it definitely causes conflict. We see that look at the history of Brooklyn. Like yeah. you see how the different ethnic communities clashed. Mm-hmm. But again, if we go for this like monolithic mm-hmm. like oh accept everyone yeah. then our acceptance of each other has no meat, has no depth. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but but this brings me to the next thing I want to ask you, um, because I know spirituality does play a key role in how you've come to look at these questions of, you know, how do we address our wounds? How do yeah. we learn to love? So could you give people a little bit of a sense of how your, how your own journey has unfolded spiritually? Yeah, so I grew up Christian in a Protestant home that observed Jewish holidays. So you could say that my upbringing was very psychedelic. Every Christmas, we did not celebrate Christmas we gathered together in our house and discussed Emperor Constantine and how he changed things at the Council of Nicaea. And if you don't know that reference, great, now you have homework. Um, Like, just to give you a sort of insight or window into the intellectualness of my upbringing. Every Yom Kippur, we fasted. (laughs) So um, my sense of time, my sense of cyclical time revolved around the way the Jews related to time, but also a protest against Catholicism. Meanwhile, I grew up in New Orleans, which is yeah. a deeply Catholic town. Um, around senior year in college, I had a bit of an existential breakdown where I realized that some of the things that I had adopted willy-nilly in my religious upbringing were not were not sufficient for me in my relationship to the divine, which unleashed a period of depression and sorrow that lasted a number of years, and but also led to a lot of searching, a lot of questing, and um, ultimately led to me discovering the writings of Carl Jung uh, and many uh, female colleagues who r- worked with Jung, like Helen Luke and Marion Woodman and Marie-Louise von Franz, who had a lot of important things to say, not only about death psychology, but also womanhood uh, specifically. I also discovered the East. (laughs) I discovered Eastern mysticism, um, primarily through John Verveke, cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto. I picked up his meditation practice in 2020, discovered Taoism, discovered Buddhism. Um, There's a lot of like, contemplations meditations on yin yang that i love um because it's all about oh yeah i do yeah it's all about finding the balance um i've also been deeply moved and inspired by terrence malick my favorite film director who's a heideggerian i guess you could say um actually explicitly a heideggerian and you can see i can see like some of the overlap between heidegger and yin yang ideas so yeah, I've been influenced by a lot in my 30 years on Earth, <laughs> and um, yeah, that's that's been my path to spirituality. Yeah, I'm curious to know a little bit more about the Jungian influences because personally, like right now, yeah. I'm getting more into depth psychology. Um, I've seen many psychologists since I was a kid because okay. after my parents divorced, I was three years old. Mm-hmm. 
they thought, you know, the best thing to do would be to send me to therapy to try to work out the issues. But everybody I saw was basically doing CBT. They're all okay. behaviorists. Yeah. And never, like, when I would bring up these deeper questions, like, yeah. you know, these existential matters, um, they're always very dismissive. You don't really know what to do with them. Oh, interesting. Can yeah. you give an example? Yeah, like, I remember when I was starting college, I was seeing one therapist. Mm -hmm. And that was when I first kind of had my religious awakening. And I, I realized, like, I have this desire to be good, to be selfless, but I keep hitting this wall. Like, I keep trying to do the right thing, but I fall short. Okay. I feel like... And I also have questions about the meaning of things. Like, mm -hmm. why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Um, like, there is this intense need to know, like, what is the point of anything? Yeah. Sure. Especially because, I don't know, like, they put so much pressure on us to do well in school, to get a job. And it's like, okay, for what? Yeah. If we're going to die. Right. And I came to this point and I said this to the therapist. I was like, I need some revelation or some breakthrough from outside of me. Yeah. Like, something has to come to me. And he was like, that's not going to happen. Like, you just have to accept yourself. Just try your best to be good and things will pan out fine. Okay. And I was like, you know, that hasn't been working. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I had my religious experience, but now like I've been looking into Jung, I've been looking into Freud and perhaps their worldviews may not totally overlap with mine spiritually, but the fact that it's depth psychology, it allows a lot more space for these types of questions sure, yeah. to, to emerge. So that's why I don't know, like I'm fascinated by Freud and Jung and how they allow us to really really go deep within our, our histories, mm -hmm. our souls, and, and ask, I don't know, like, how did we become the way we are, you know? Yeah, I mean, Jung is super into individuation, what he calls individuation, which does pull from certain religious narratives, yes. including Christianity. Yeah. And, and the archetypes as yeah, well. Yeah, Joseph Campbell yeah. plays a role there, and it's, so it's not dismissive, and it's in fact emergent from, I would say, the big, grand religious... Yeah paradigms yeah. which is but but interprets them in a way that i wasn't previously exposed to but in a way that makes sense i think part of jordan peterson's early like people's attraction to him early on was because he was riffing on that and he was yes. playing with that and so it does that form of depth depth psychology does tap into that deep tradition which is still alive very much alive within us whether or not we're religious or secular it doesn't really matter like I just told you I came back from this retreat, this movement-based retreat, where one of the things I learned was to fall and get back up. And it dawned on me that if, if the interpretation of Adam and Eve, part of the interpretation of Adam and Eve that we carry to this very day is that falling is bad. <laughs> yeah. It's a very different paradigm from learning. No, you're actually designed to fall and get back up. It's a total, totally different reframe totally different shift and i think that there are elements of carl jung's interpretation of the adam and eve story that that allow space for that type of take on the narrative yeah and uh, now since we're getting into uh, jung and peterson i did want to bring up tate i wanted to get your hot tate like take to, like, how we're going to segue into that though like, how because okay i'm going to say for me Especially with the Jung thing. I don't know, like, I've explored the quote-unquote manosphere. Um, no, I mean, I have a lot of reservations about Peterson, but I do feel like listening to him has helped me to, like, to explore certain questions about masculinity. Um, there are some practical things there. For sure, I like, I like Peterson. I, was, I did a whole dive into Peterson in 2020. I was on Peterson's podcast... I just think he's been captured by celebrity and it's not yes. reactive. But I, I like, I think Maps of Meaning was way better than 12 Rules for, I mean, I didn't read 12 Rules for Life, but my sense is that Maps of Meaning is better. Um, but yeah, like, I, I, don't have, I don't have a problem with much of Peterson. Yeah, no, I mean, the celebrity thing, it's another issue. Yeah. But no, but then, okay, now Tate is like the latest manifestation of this quote unquote manosphere. Um, you've said some interesting things about him on, yeah. on social media, on your podcast. I'll just say, like, on one hand, I kind of think he's a psyop. I think it's just, like, to I grab our attention. I what people mean when they say that. What I think he's... Mean? I mean, my conspiracy theory is that he was placed there so that 
any type of like masculinity discourse could be like shot down. Okay. That's my theory. Probably not true. <laughs> but no, I mean, has he said some valid things? Sure. Yeah. He's insane though. Um, no, but tell it, give us a sense of like, yeah, what is your hot take? What do you make of him? You know, I, I was in a meeting yesterday and I asked, I, I was like, especially coming from this thing where I had to do, I had to wake up at 6.30. It was like boot camp. It was like, I wake up at 6.30, throw my body into these very intense situations and learn how to adapt. And I came away with a realization for why people are attracted to the military. Like I got it. I was like, okay, cool. Um, but then I thought to myself, I asked this question yesterday to someone. I was like, how, what percentage of people, of young men who watch Andrew Tate, do you think actually go to the gym regularly and consistently? Yeah. <laughs> like, probably not that many. And I think that's very telling. Because, yes, I think Tate is, like, speaking to a deep wound that men are experiencing right now, which includes feelings of aimlessness, feelings of purposelessness, meaninglessness. Right, which are all deep wounds that we must solve as a society. Generally speaking, historically speaking, Esther Perel told me this. She's like, you, you will, historically speaking, you will see a rise of fascism. Where, where there's been a rise of fascism in Europe, there's also been a masculinity crisis. Like those, th- those things go hand in hand. So we need to solve it for sure. But Andrew Tate himself is a deep, in my read, is a deeply wounded person who has not worked out the issues that concern his relationship with his father um you know you have his miss he was basically without his father from the age of 13 moved to the uk looked up to his father as this like you know chess master who taught him martial arts but then all of a sudden his his father's gone right for pretty formidable years like 13 is like around puberty right and so he only from that point on sees his father like once or twice a year so he has an idealized version of his father in his head that he's always trying to live up to. Yeah. Idealized because constantly absent, right? Um, and I think that he hasn't dealt with those wounds. And um, he says really important things like go to the gym and get yourself together. And very similar to Peterson, I would say, in that sense. Like be able to endure hardship but then he will also suggest that men be vain and simply try to accumulate as many women as possible as much wealth as i mean it's actually a power oriented structure ironically he has much in common with uh the so-called woke left which he derides both are power oriented in their paradigm um and so yeah i just don't think he's that interesting actually (laughs) super super i could say super influential but again like what percentage of the men who watch him are actually going to the gym i think that's a tall tale sign that he's not as influential he's not as practically talkless you know influential as just because he has like millions of followers and retweets that's not the same as going to the gym and building your body to endure hardship right Mm -hmm. So. Have you seen any of his videos with Aiden Ross, the Twitch streamer? Maybe. I don't Maybe. I don't remember okay. how Aiden Ross looks. He's this young kid who's yeah, he's a Twitch streamer, just plays oh, video is he games. He's the guy where he's like you need to go to the gym. Yes. Yeah, 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 I've seen he that. He calls him Pudgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're I mean, first I think it's kind of funny just to watch yeah, these cuz sure. it's entertaining. Yeah. No, but the dynamic between these two it's this strange father-son type of dynamic, which personally, I think, echoes a little bit of Socrates' dialogues with these young, young philosophers and athletes. Um, but the, it definitely goes to what you're saying about this, like, this wound of masculinity and this, this need for a father. Yeah. And no, I don't really think Andrew Tate's the best father figure, but the fact that there are these young men looking to figures like him, like... Yeah. It says something, you know, it's just something that we need to be paying attention to. For sure. And yeah. I, I, I don't agree with, you know, these, I, I, I don't want to call them feminists because I don't think they're actually feminists, but like the so-called feminist responses, which is just to like shit on men and be dismissive of men and dismissive of the wounds that men carry. There's just better sources. Like James Hollis wrote a beautiful book called Under Saturn's Shadow, The Wounding and Healing of Men. Mm 
that I would highly recommend for anyone who's interested in this topic. Um, and um, I mean, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. But like in general, the Jungian depth psychology yeah. world has a lot to say about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then the next thing I wanted to ask, I'm going to shift gears again. Mm-hmm. So you often talk about the role music has played in your own life, but also in your development of theory of enchantment. Mm-hmm. Um, why is music so important to you? Um, I, I do think I was exposed to music in the womb. My sense of dance is uncannily instinctual. Um, and I do appreciate this new discovery that I just told you about, which is that, like, I come actually come out of a tradition that has a very specific relationship to music, African-American tradition, that uses music to transmute energy. So whether you're transmuting sorrow... Whether you're transmuting meaningless pain into sorrow, which those are not the same things, right? Um, Or sorrow into joy or, um, you know, any other type of transmutation, I think music is a beautiful salve and way to process life. And so as a result, we reference a lot of music in the theory of enchantment. We have people study different songs. I'm really happy that I'm able to more tightly connect. It was like, it's almost as if it was always there, but I just didn't know it. Like the enchant part with the fact that there's so much music, so much poetry in theory of enchantment. Yeah. And I just, I want to know, I mean, we're sitting here in bed yeah. Somebody over here is playing like all these awesome, like soul classics. Yeah, but also we're in the home of Biggie, of Jay-Z. I mean, like this area is, has a rich history of producing great music. Um, and you, but you also DJ. I do. I DJ. I produce music when I find the time to. I love dancing. DJing is all about moving from one song to another seamlessly, fluidly. So, um, yeah, I love providing music for... Actually, we're ha- I'm having a jam session tonight, believe it or not. Um, you're welcome to join if you if you want to swing by. But um, yeah, I love music. Music is a I don't know if it's my first language, but like I, there's certain elements. Like I'm not trained in any way, but there's certain elements yeah. of music that I instinctively understand. Yeah, and I mean, as you were saying, music does have this transcendent, yeah. enchanted quality that can break through so many barriers. Like there's something deeply universal. Yeah. Um, but within Theory of Enchantment, like, give us an example of a song that you've used. Yeah, so there's a lesson on parental baggage. There's several lessons on parental baggage, actually, in our curriculum. And one of the lessons asks students to listen to a song by John Mayer called In the Blood, which is ex- explicitly about parental baggage, and then use that to, uses that song to prompt questions about people's relationship to their parents what are the traditions that their parents pass down to them that they'd like to keep that they'd like to release how does their relationship with their parents show up for them in actual conflict in, in the present moment um can they get curious about that ask questions about that um in the song in the blood john mayer explicitly asks how much of my mother has my mother left in me uh and so yeah just like again i think it's like a psychedelic introspective to see what you're made of people just assume that they're born and they're they're like i don't believe in blank slate theory like you're operating within a paradigm that has been impressed upon for thousands of years by people who came before you you are the inheritor of that um that's actually fodder or compost for meaning if you are given the right tools to help you get in right relationship with that. And I I do think I really value the upbringing that I had for all of its topsy-turviness. The central question I was forced to wrestle with was like, where does everything come from? (laughs) You know? Yeah. No, and it made me super happy to hear how much you incorporate music into the curriculum because for me as an educator... Using music is super important, especially teaching theology and philosophy, which, you know, can be hard for young people to get into. But as soon as you present music, especially pop music, 
and present certain questions. Like it really helps students to like enter more deeply into certain bigger concepts. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why I do that is because like music played a huge role in my own journey, especially mm -hmm. my spiritual journey. Um, I don't know if I don't remember if I mentioned this when I was talking on your podcast, but I mean my my parents raised me mostly with soul music. My dad was very big on Motown. My mother loved disco. And it was like, yeah, it was in like the middle of high school that I developed my personal relationship with soul music because, I mean, obviously, okay, the history, it's, it's rooted in the spirituals, it's rooted yeah. in the experience of the slaves, of finding hope, resilience within injustice and suffering. But also there's, there is this like spiritual depth, this awareness that there's something greater in life. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, I feel like specifically... It was the singers within, like, the neo-soul music movement. So, like, Badu, Lauren Hill, D'Angelo. Like, there's a certain depth there that just totally captivated me. Yeah, Badu is wild. I love yeah. Badu. You know, it's <laughs> funny. I, when I went to get this coffee at the coffee shop down there, they had a... One of the lattes was named the, ba the Badu. Oh, cool. I don't know Wait, what was it. Did you go to Milk and Pool? Yes, yeah. I did. Okay, so they have the Badu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you guys want a Badu latte, go to Milk and Pull. Um, but no, but especially Badu, like... I would listen to her songs on repeat so I was like she she's tapping into something in my soul like I can't name but like she gets it and that's what made me say like I want to know like what where does this beauty come from like yeah. what is this all point what is this all about yeah. you know so like music is is crucial and it the thing that concerns me though is like a lot of us I feel like are quick to reduce pop music just to entertainment when yeah. really it can do so much more than just entertain, you know. For sure. I mean, one of the things we, you know, we take pop culture very seriously. I think we've been chatting. It's not just entertainment. It's not just a form of entertainment. It's teaching us something about what it means to be human, about what we're yearning for. Mm -hmm. And even if that, that music is sometimes trafficking in escapism or numbing or disassociation then the question becomes well what are we numbing from ourselves from what are we disassociating ourselves from what are we trying to escape how can we get curious like the questions in theory of enchantment is like how can we get curious about everything because what we are often as human beings threatened by is the fear of the unknown so how can we untrain ourselves or retrain ourselves to get curious about the unknown be delighted by the unknown be enchanted by the unknown so that we can live without this like very somatic sense of threat all the time which is not a very fun yeah. place to live no. from no. i also know you're very into afro house yes all things afro beats afro, afro house beats. afro amapiano like whatever it comes it's coming from the continent i mean so what <laughs> what do you hear in it though like what what's fascinating Ooh. to you so that is a sound especially afro beats that is a sound that i'm that i think i heard from the womb womb like i don't I don't know how to explain it. It's very familiar to me. Um, there is an album called Sounds of Blackness that uh, came out in like the late 90s or yeah, something that, that I definitely grew up listening to. Wow. And, and I, I like... Keep I, your head up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's also got a very 90s feel yes. to it, but it's, it's got some elements of Afrobeats. And I just remember that, that being the, one of the earliest albums that I remember hearing. Hmm, wow. And... Yeah, there's, there's definitely African rhythms in my most distant memory. <laughs> like, I hear it, and I, and I feel like... I don't know what I feel. Like, I feel it's very, it feels very familiar. Yeah. Like, even before I was born, it's like, there's something there. There's some, like, lineage that I'm not only reaching for, but I feel, like, connected to. Yeah. That's, like, in my bones. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to see right now, like, there seems to be this going back to the roots of, like, of African music, African yeah. beats. Like, whether it's in Afrobeats, whether, like, I see um, the, like, the Hispanic genre of Dembo is, like, very yeah. much pulling from the roots. Mm -hmm. And there's so much, like, philosophical, spiritual depth there. Yeah. Something, I mean, just really can reawaken the soul. Yeah, know? and growing up in New Orleans, which is the birthplace of jazz, right, which has these, like... New Orleans is a very heavy place, I will say. Um, but one of the things I think about is, like, slaves used to dance in the square and would 
be punished for it or were perceived as a threat. And one of the reasons why they were what they would be perceived as a threat for dancing, first of all, this is what something I saw at this retreat I was at. You know, drumming has been used for many occasions, right? It's been used for dancing, but it's also been used for fighting. It's also been used for like rebellions. So like there was this sense from the master clan that like they could whip themselves up into a frenzy and just start rebelling. So that was one reason to try and make it illegal. But another reason to make it illegal is like this stark contrast of these here these people are and they're enslaved, but they're like dancing. Like they're free enough. There's a sense of freedom enough that they can and that's that is existentially threatening yeah. to the power structure. Um, but I come from that lineage. Like I, that is my 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 um, ancestors. Like my great grandparents. My grandparents experienced Jim Crow in Louisiana. My great grandparents experienced it. Grandparents before that were slaves. So like that is the heritage that I come from yeah. of dancing in the Congo Square. Uh, even though you're enslaved. Yeah. Yeah, so the the freedom yeah. of these people in and the midst yeah. There's also sorry to cut you off, there's also like a somatic thing of this is related to singing, movement. Yes. Being able to move pain. And constantly moving to a beat as a salve, as a medicine to move pain. Which is another like threat if you will to the cartesian framework i was just right? gonna say of, that of yeah. mind body separation yeah because uh, last year i had some uh, music journalist on here who talked about um brazilian funk the new mm. genre that's kind of exploding and he one of the things he was saying is that like this cartesian western worldview that says you know what matters most is the mind yeah. like music of the african diaspora totally shatters that right. because you know they had this sense that the body was enchanted, that there was right. spiritual truth within our bodies right. that comes out when we dance, when we make music, when we're drumming. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why, again, like I have a lot of hope seeing the kind of music that's coming out today because I think it shatters this like post-structuralist kind of like Anglo-centric worldview that is very dull, that can be very just boring, yeah. you know. I would like to know, in the same way that you educated me on, like, what Christopher Columbus Day was a response to, I would like to know more about what this rejection of the body was in response to within the Anglo-Saxon history. I mean, part of me thinks it has to do with climate, that, like, the countries that... Yeah, like... I feel like the countries that really bought into this Cartesian worldview were mostly, like, Northern European. I mean, it started in France, but... No, but then the other thing, like, I do think there is this religious component because, I don't know, like, Martin Luther was very skeptical about anything physical, anything human, wanted to totally focus all of the religious devotion to God itself as opposed to, like, the more human manifestations. So, you know... Why? Like, what was going on in Martin Luther's life that he, that he like, came to this conclusion? I mean, we know that he was not happy with what the Catholic Church was doing sure. with, you know, the indulgences and, yeah. like, the sacraments. But, I mean, in terms of, I mean, here's Jung again. Like, I wonder if there were events in his own history yeah. with his, his childhood, whatever, that made him distrustful of the body. I don't know. I mean, that's somebody should write a thesis this on. Is my, that. This is my theory about Paul, which is a which is a side note. But like, I think my suspicion is that Paul had a weird relationship with women, which oh, explains yeah. his more pointed scriptures yes. against women talking in the church, and all the things he said about women. It's like there's clearly there's some repression that seems yeah. clear to me in in those texts, and it makes me get curious about like, okay, what was happening for Paul in this at this time like what was happening for martin luther such that he developed this um repressive relationship with the body because there's it always comes from somewhere again where do these things come from like it always comes from somewhere if i could know where it came from i could be more compassionate yes towards it because without knowing my default is to just be like you're full of shit goodbye (laughs) so all right so before we head out what would anything you want to plug anything you want to tell listeners about Yes, businesses. Check out theoryofachievement.com. Enroll your employees in our curriculum. 
buy our workshops. I do great workshops. They're super fun, I promise. If you're an individual, you can also enroll in our curriculum. Um, you can also check out the Heart Speaks podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at cvaldery. You can follow me on Twitter, although I'm barely there these days, at cvaldery. Um, and spread the word. We're trying to get Theory of Enchantment more out there so people bring it into their their spaces, their places, all the things. And um, if you have done Theory of Enchantment and been deeply impacted by it, please let me know. Slide into my DMs. I would love to hear from you and learn about your story. Awesome. So check out Theory of Enchantment. And uh, Chloe, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Stephen.